You're listening to Charge, a CCS podcast. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Charge podcast. Uh, This is an effort by Chattanooga Christian School to let particularly our families uh, and other constituents uh, see into um, or behind the curtain of what drives the decisions we make at CCS. And we're glad to do this. My name is Chad Dirksy. It's my privilege to serve as a CCS president and host of this podcast. And I'm really excited to have a group of people with me today that are going to talk about something that's really important to us. We care deeply uh, about the social, emotional well-being and mental health of our community uh, and particularly of our students. Uh, and, and we have this thing called the capstone at CCS where our students participate in a project that's the culmination of their CCS experience and the education here. And we have three students um, and an important member of our faculty and staff here that are going to talk about what they did in their capstone. Uh, and we have a special guest. And I'm going to let Courtney Caroland, um, who teaches Bible at CCS and is, is one of our members of our spiritual care and worship team, uh, to, to give a little bit more of an overview of what's happening and introduce our special guests and the students that are with us today. So take it away, Courtney. Thanks, Chad. Yes, so I, these students, these three here, and that'll be on the podcast and one other who's unable to be with us, have spent their fall semester researching various topics and mental health. And um, they've come alongside me because they're passionate about mental health education. And they've come alongside me to pull off a parent night with David Thomas, who's with us today, um, to help equip our parents and our students and our faculty um, so, and bring a parent night to our community on April 11th. So these girls are with us and they're going to help and you'll hear a lot from them in this podcast. But I wanted to introduce to you who's with us. His name is David Thomas. He's the director of family counseling at Daystar in Nashville, Tennessee. And I have been um, very uh, informed and equipped by their work. And it's been very meaningful for me and my role at CCS. And so I'm just really excited that you're here, David. And I'm wondering if you could introduce yourself and a little bit about you, and then I'll lead us off with the first question. Glad to, and and let me begin by saying, I'm just thankful to be part of this conversation this morning. I love what you all are about. I love learning more about the Capstone experience and just really honored to be a small part of the conversation today. So thank you. And I, as was shared, have been a therapist at an amazing place for the past 25 years called Daystar Counseling Ministries in Nashville. And we serve just the pediatric population. So our whole focus is working with kids, adolescents, and families. And we do that work in a little different way in that we are in a house rather than an office building. And that was a very intentional choice. If anyone listening has ever been to counseling, you know that it can be an overwhelming experience particularly that first visit. So we try to do as much as we can to make it feel safe and comfortable. And it's part of why we chose to be in a home rather than an office. And the most sought after therapists in our practice, I work with 14 great therapists, but I work with six therapy dogs who are the most sought after therapists in our practice, hands down. And love that we have the freedom to really incorporate, integrate that into the work we do. And I've just been really thankful to work with this amazing team for the past 25 years and out of that work have had 
the privilege of writing some books and getting to travel around the country and just talk about different aspects of child development, adolescent development, and uh, about mental health. So I feel like today I'm with my home team that we're having this kind of conversation together. And again, just really honored to get to be a part of it. David, we are so glad you're here. And Chad's laughing at me a little bit because I have a dog, Teddy, who I'm also training to be a therapy dog. So. I was kind of, I was wondering yeah. what in the world, how did she get connected to you? And we, we have this thing back and forth about dogs and she does have a cute dog, but I just got a new puppy and mine is cuter, but um, I'm not training mine to be a therapy dog, but that that's a side note. Um, I'll, I'll turn it over back to Courtney to yeah. do the important stuff. Love that. So well, David, oh, go I ahead. Quick disclaimer. When my therapy dog is off duty, he sometimes assigns himself the role of guard dog. And so we may hear him barking at the mailman in the background at some point in our time together. So I'm glad I'm in the room with a lot of dog people. Yeah, we welcome that. Um, well, I am curious first, like it is, uh, mental health has always been very important, obviously, but it has certainly been amplified. I think the needs that we're seeing in the pandemic, I think um, anything that was kind of going on, ongoing before the pandemic, it feels like the volume has been turned up and understandably so. And so I am curious, what patterns or trends in mental health are you seeing with teens coming out of the pandemic? Could you speak a little bit to that? Be glad to. And, and would say, you know, when I look back, when I think back on what things were looking like before the pandemic, and I think the longer this goes on, the harder it gets to remember what life was like before. But you know, if we think back to pre-pandemic, we were seeing accelerated rates of anxiety and depression. In fact, uh, I co-authored a book called Are My Kids on Track with two of my colleagues at Daystar, and we did the research for this book around 2015. And at that point, the current statistic was that one in eight students would struggle with anxiety. And pre-pandemic, that had jumped to one in four. And then the current stat with adolescents is one in three. So we are climbing toward what I fear at some point could be one in two, every other person. And so there have been accelerated rates we've seen for some time. The pandemic didn't do a thing, but just move those numbers up. And I think there are a lot of, we could have a long conversation about all the whys of that, but I will simply say for all the hard news that accompanies those realities, I think I am grateful that there's never been a time in history when we have been thinking as much or talking as much about mental health. I hate that it took a pandemic for us to reach that place, um, but I am grateful that I think this conversation is front and center in a way that really I've never seen in the history of my work. And so I am hopeful. You know, there are a lot of things I hope we all hope we carry on to the other side of the pandemic. I'm hopeful there continues to be a focus and that we are thinking proactively more than ever on the other side of this is, is one of my great hopes. Yeah, thank you, David. Yeah, that's helpful. Um, I'm going to turn this over to some of these girls so that they can tell you their name and the research that they've done, and they each have prepared some, a question for you. So first, Caroline, would you like to go? Uh, hi, I'm Caroline Haynes. Uh, I'm a senior at CCS, um, and my research topic is how loneliness affects depression and other disorders in teens. Um, and something that I've noticed in some of my research is that loneliness, especially like loneliness and like a pandemic with social distancing and some of those things, um, it tends to exacerbate um, already serious conditions and disorders. 
Um, so I was just wondering, how would you encourage students and parents to connect with and care for a loved person with depression or anxiety? Like, how would you encourage them to interact with them and love them well? It's mm, a great question. I want to begin by saying I'd love to look at your research. I could learn a lot. And I am so thankful you've done that deep dive into that space. And the great reminder, even in the way you asked that question, that I think we are all made for connection. I think it's part of how we are hardwired. And I think we've long known that, but I don't know that we've ever been reminded of that in quite the ways we were through the pandemic when we experienced more isolation and less connection, what I call true connection. You know, there's the Apple version of FaceTime and then there's the real version of FaceTime. And I think we had the opportunity to still be connected with friends and family through technology, but not in the same way that we experience connection person to person. And so certainly it was my experience during the pandemic. We serve a range of students from surrounding counties and every county in our surrounding area handled, you know, returning to school differently. So for example, Davidson County where I'm housed, we're really out of school for the majority of 18 months with a little re-entry and then kind of back in, back out. And then our neighboring county, Williamson County, we're back in school around five to six months later. And it was fascinating to see the differences with students just one county across. And that's not to say that every student who got to return to school was thriving and every student who didn't was struggling. But it is to say there was a noticeable difference. And I think it was the reminder of what your research reveals that we're made for connection. And I think even the connection that I have experienced that students have when they are just in a classroom, intersecting with peers, having brief conversations in the hallways, interacting at extracurricular experiences after school, that those are meaningful connections. And, you know, we could certainly argue, well, I didn't get to talk a lot because I was in class all day and at sports practice in the afternoon, but still the opportunity of being in close proximity is part of how we understand meaningful connections. So, my great hope, again, thinking about how we move forward in this is that we're more thoughtful, more attentive to the dangers of isolation and the importance of connection than ever before. And I think it's a great question. I periodically sit with students and I'll say, name for me one to two people that you would say know how you're really doing. I think it's a great question to ask family and friends. Do you have at least one person in your life that is aware of how you're doing. That's you're being honest and transparent with not just having surface conversation, but they have a real sense of where you are. And if you can't name at least one person that feels uh, like a red flag for me. And what does it look like to move students I meet with toward more meaningful connection, knowing how foundational I think that is to well-being. Thank you. Thank you. Um, Maddie, would you like to go next? I can. Hi, my name is Maddie Hester, and my research topic is how social media um, impacts the self-image of teenagers, and I think that's really significant, especially, you know, in today's time, um, and a lot of my research has been about um, how it's a known thing that social media isn't going away, so the question I have for you is that um, although social media can bring many positive things, how should we be less influenced to to compare ourselves to one another through a screen and what that looks like? It's a great question. And 
I love that you started that question by acknowledging the fact that there are good things happening on social media. And I think we can go quickly when we even think about the animal of social media to the dangers. And there certainly are dangers, but I do want to acknowledge, and I love that you did, that there are some great things happening, really great things happening. I've had two friends in recent times who have been part of fundraising efforts on behalf of others, identifying some real needs in our world who have said, and I think their results uh, illustrate that social media is a powerful platform for doing good in our world. So I, I always want to camp out there first, but moving toward the reality that we all know is that it too can be a danger. And I think particularly for adolescents and you are, you know, every adolescent listening, every parent of an adolescent listening is aware that you're in a foundational season of development where you're wrestling with your sense of identity. It's what we call an identity formation stage of development, where you're thinking about who you are in this world and where you fit in this world and how you're different and how you're the same to people around you. And I think social media has invited more comparison in that space than I think is healthy or useful. And so I am consistently asking students that I sit with to evaluate, you know, who are you following that when you finish looking at their content, you would say you feel this sense of worth and satisfaction versus when you finish spending time with that person's content, you feel less content with yourself, less connected, less we've thrown the blank with so many things. And so I think there's something really valuable about evaluating the places where we camp out digitally. You know, the folks we follow, how much time we spend with uh, interacting with a screen. And I also will challenge students in terms of social media to uh, keep the screen time tool on. I, I do think that's one of the better um, applications that Apple came up with. And I don't know if you all have had this experience, but I certainly have. You know, you get your screen time report every weekend and I take a look at that number and I think, oh my goodness, are you kidding me? My screen time was up this week or I, I was on screens for that much time. And I think it's a really valuable tool that every one of us, not just students, but us as adults is vulnerable to getting lost in that space, whether it's social media, whether it's gaming, any number of you know different ways that we can get pulled into the vortex of screens and not realize we've spent that much time, which, I would lastly just say to your great question, there is a great tool that I recommend families take a look at often, and it's a tool called the Healthy Mind Platter, and it was developed by Dr. Dan Siegel, who's done some really extraordinary work. He and Dr. Tina Payne Bryson wrote a great book called The Whole Brain Child that a lot of folks have read, and Dan developed this tool that is maybe a little like how we once upon a time developed an understanding of what it means to have heart health that, you know, at one point in time, we developed a, a clear understanding of in order to have a healthy heart, I need to be exercising at least 30 minutes a day, three times a week. I need to avoid too many salty foods. I need to, you know, these different things that we know are a part of how every one of us can experience heart health and try to do something very similar in terms of mind health and, and to create a tool that allowed us to evaluate what does it look like to optimize our cognitive health. And so he has this 
great will that's broken into these categories that, you know, allow us to really think about the amount of sleep we're experiencing, the amount of time we're spending on screens, the amount of time back to your great question that we're spending in connection with other people, the amount of time that we have just to turn our brains off and experience play. And so I'd invite every person listening. It's an easy resource to find online. If you just Googled healthy mind platter, you'll easily find a PDF. And I think it's a great thing to print off and to use as a gauge as you evaluate well-being and the ways that you kind of spend the hours of the day and the days of the week. So I think it could be a useful tool on top of the screen time report for really attending to the amount of time you're spending with social media in particular. That's great. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, thanks so much. I highly recommend The Whole Brain Child. I just finished reading it, and it is a really helpful great. read for parents. Yes, great resource. Yeah. Jesse, would you like to go next? Yeah, um, my name is Jesse, and um, this year I've been studying um, depression and anxiety, specifically in teens. And um, a question I came up with that I think a lot of parents have been also questioning as well is the role of medication and how um, I know there's a lot of mixed feelings about the medication and how it can help or not help and honestly make it worse. And I just wanted to get your thoughts on the role of medication in dealing with depression. Yeah. A couple of thoughts there. I would say, first off, that I'm thankful for the tool of medication, that we have a resource like that in this world for individuals who benefit from that form of treatment really thankful and i've seen it serve a significant purpose now with that said i'd also say i work with a lot of students who struggle with some anxiety and depression who didn't need medication and therapeutic support was the most of what they needed and it's not always easy to tell which individuals are going to benefit from just counseling and which individuals may need the combination of counseling and medication but my encouragement to students who begin struggling in that space is to start the counseling process to see if that's enough. Because again, for a percentage of folks, it really is. And if it's not, you are then walking with a trained professional who can help you assess, do we need to pull medication in at this point? You know, have we traveled far enough down the road and modified enough of life to create some space for there to be movement and growth without medication? Or do we need to pull that into the equation? And I would say, I do think this is important to note too, there are some really scary experiences that have happened in our world that there's a small percentage of folks who have started a medication and had some really negative side effects with that. And it's been my experience sitting with parents often that it's easy to assume that's the highest percent, the 90% of people who start medication have those kind of experiences. And the reality when we look at the data is that couldn't be less true. In fact, it's a really small percentage of individuals who experience negative side effects, but yet those stories capture a lot of attention in ways that can leave us thinking that's the majority of folks. And therefore, I think it makes a lot of people reluctant to explore that path when needed. Again, it's not always needed, but when needed. So I want to caution parents, let's not get our information from Google. Let's not get our information from the story floating around or I heard this story, but, you know, let's make sure we're talking with trained professionals to get accurate information. So I would say that in starting, but I would also connect that back to the healthy mind platter that, 
you know, it's been my experience that there's some folks who want to jump to medication a little too quick and maybe haven't explored some valuable tools like counseling or something like the healthy mind platter to say, okay, am I doing all the things I could be doing on my end to really promote well-being before I explore that resource? And, and we don't want to necessarily start at that place unless the starting point for medication sometimes is if the symptomology is so significant with anxiety or depression that an individual, it's debilitating their functioning. You know, I've worked with some individuals who the anxiety was so debilitating, it was difficult to just get in the school building every day or the depression was so significant, it was hard to just get out of bed. Sometimes we do short term have to use some medication to bring the symptomology down to a point where they can just build some traction and there's room and space. But again, that's all under the guidance of a trained professional. So I want to challenge folks to really seek out the right kind of support as you're evaluating those kind of big decisions. But really glad you asked it because that's an important conversation that I think is worth having. Yeah. Thank you. Yes. Thank you. David, I actually have a follow-up question to that. What um, what should teens or parents consider in finding or choosing a therapist? You mentioned counseling as a good resource and a place to start. Um, and I'm curious what you would say about finding someone for them to walk alongside with. You know, I would say to any parents listening that I think a great place to start in the exploration process is talk with your child's pediatrician. And I would recommend that for two reasons. One, because it's the individual you have entrusted their overall health to. And they've likely got a a significant history and know your child. And knowing, secondly, the great resources that exist in your community, they could make a very specific match based on their history with your student and clinicians in the community that could potentially be a good fit or have expertise in a specific area. I'd say beyond that, I think it's great to really evaluate connection as well. And I think, you know, it, it is important. That's what I call a working relationship where I think there needs to be trust. There needs to be connection for there to be growth and movement. And so I do think it is important uh that those things are evaluated in the process. And sometimes it's been my experience that folks start with one person and travel a short distance and find there isn't that level of trust and connection uh, in a way that's needed that frees them up to get all they can from the experience. So I do think that's foundational, Um, not just someone who has training and expertise, but also where a, a student can really experience connection as well. Great. Thank you. Hey, David, this, this was really, really good. And I, I really appreciate you taking the time. I, I have a question. So I'm 54 years old. I grew up in a world that's different than the world today. And, and there are things that transcend time, like our, our, our hardwiring as a bearer of God's image to be connected. We were made and created for community. So that, that, doesn't, that doesn't change and ebb and flow with time. But there are also things that do change and ebb and flow in time. So what, what do you say to adults? Because we're we, we want to serve students through these efforts we're making, and, and we want to also care for adults that, 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 that they have to think differently, or what's a perspective that they have to reconsider as they look at this particular generation of, of teenagers, adolescents, children, right, that may be different than it was when I grew up and experienced. Have you seen any, any kind of common patterns of advice you've had to give in that regard? Yes. And, and I think you're a hundred percent correct. Like there's some basic realities, you know, that are connected to our sense of well-being that are the same as they were 100 years ago and will be the same 100 years from now. Like the amount of sleep that every one of us needs is not going to change. (laughs) 
<laughs> no matter how hard we push for more opportunity, we are still going to need the exact same amount of sleep. We're still going to need, as you said, the experience of connection, real FaceTime, as we talked about on the front side of this conversation. We're still going to need relationship with God. Like these foundational parts of how we're made and what we need are not going to change over time. What has changed? And, and I love the way you asked that question because it, it has been my experience. And I say this with the greatest respect to parents listening, you know, that there, there are a number of parents that it's easy to, to say to a teenager, you know, I was a teenager once too. I know how hard it is. And I'm always quick to challenge parents to say, I don't think that's a helpful statement ever. One, because we don't understand what it's like to be a teenager in this moment in time. We have no idea. And so I would throw that statement out and I would replace it with a question. I think it's great to ask your student consistently, what is it like? Like, help me know what are the hardest things you face? What are the greatest challenges of junior year? You know, a great example would be, ladies, I was thinking about all three of you when you were talking about senior year and I have three kids all three who are in college now and having watched their process through junior and senior year of applying to college, visiting colleges, going through that whole process. You know, I've worked with students for 25 years and I have sat with more juniors and seniors than I could possibly count. And I have never seen the process of pursuing college and applying to college be as complicated and as pressure filled as it is in this day and time. So I think that's but one of many examples we could point to of, I don't need to assume I know what that's like because my process was nothing like the way it is in this day and time. And the pressure that I think students can feel to hit a certain ACT or SAT score and all of what's included in that decision, the animal of social media that we just talked about technology. I mean, I'm dating myself, but it didn't even exist at one point in time. And so we don't know. And I would start with a question that allows you to know more, assuming that you don't know, because there's a lot for us as parents to learn about what it's like to navigate life at this time in history. You know, an obvious one that's in front of every one of us is I have no idea what it's like to be in high school during the middle of a global pandemic. I have no idea what that's like. None of us do. And so there's a lot of opportunity, I think, for learning that I would challenge parents listening uh, to step into. Yeah, you made an important comment at the beginning when you addressed one of the students and said, I'd like to read your research. Um, I think that communicates uh, a value and worth in the person um, that's a student at this point that helps them see we we don't just care for them, um, that that they, they add value to our lives. As educators, it's every day I go home and I've learned something from a student that I didn't know the day before. So and my own kids didn't always experience that for me, where they where they knew that it, it wasn't just what I thought I could do for them, but what they were actually doing for me. And then asking the question, right, what is it like, communicates that same type of value. So I appreciate you reflecting that. Well, we're, we're about to run out of time here because one of the things that happens with technology is our bandwidth for paying attention is shorter than ever before, too. So unfortunately, we're going to have to draw this to a close. But do you mind giving us a little bit of a foretaste of uh, the event that you're going to be coming to CCS? What's, what's the topic? What are you, what are you hoping to communicate uh, to those that attend on, on that day coming up? Well, I'll begin by saying I'm so thankful you all invited me. I, I can't wait to come to your city and to be a part of that time. And 
we're going to spend some time that evening talking about navigating the emotional world of kids and teens. And we'll be talking around some of these very realities of the differences now versus when parents who are part of that time were growing up. And I hope to camp out for a period of time. We're going to talk about, I mentioned my book, Are My Kids on Track? That book is for emotional, for social, and for spiritual milestones that we want to see kids and adolescents moving toward throughout development. And we're going to spend some time talking about the emotional milestones. I'm going to define all four. And we talk about these milestones like muscles and that for some of us, the muscle is more developed. And for some of us, the muscle is less developed. And the good news is if it's, if the muscle is weaker, it can get stronger, but it can't just on its own. That takes some work. And we're going to talk specifically about that work and what does it look like for every one of us to develop these emotional muscles that allow us to navigate all of life to, you know, borrow the term from the recovery community to deal with life on life's terms. And, you know, we talked about the stats with anxiety and depression. I could share some really scary stats around substance abuse and self-harm and suicide evidence of where we're not developing these emotional muscles and therefore trying to numb out our experience rather than figure out how to work it through in a healthy way. So that's part of, of what I hope we accomplish. We're going to talk about some really practical ideas because it's my mission every time I get a chance to interact with parents that I want them to leave the room with some really practical on the ground ideas that they can implement that night, the next day, and the next day um, as they intersect with their students so that every one of us can be moving toward more well-being in our own life. So I'm just excited to get to be with you and super honored you all would invite me into what is some amazing research that you've done. There's some really great, thoughtful questions, ladies. I loved having the opportunity to get to spend time with you and intersect. This has been such a privilege. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, David and, and ladies, thanks so much for your good, good, really good work. Um, uh, the content here and the, the spirit and tone of it as well, I think will be helpful for others. Uh, Courtney, do you mind wrapping up just by communicating when is the date, what time and where is it going to be? Yes, the date will be April 11th and it's going to be in the FAC from 630 to 8 p.m. And you can RSVP on the website or I think there's been an email sent out as well with an RSVP link and there will be refreshments and some food there as well. So please come. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and the, the students that have been involved in this podcast have been really the lead of every step of this, not just working with Courtney and contacting David, but also even the details of preparing what food we're going to uh, enjoy at the experience. So I'm, I'm again, I want to say I'm really grateful for your work. It's it's really, really necessary, and our, our whole school is blessed by the work you've done. So y'all, thank you, um, and we really appreciate you coming on the Charge podcast. Have a great rest of the day. Mm-hmm.